Very good. We are in Matthew chapter 12 today, verses 38 to 42, and it's another one of those hard to understand, hard to hear, what's going on here kind of passages, um, and uh, one that, that people struggle with. So we're going to read it and then get into it and try to see what the Lord has to teach us this morning. Please, as always, listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Matthew 12, verses 38-42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You bring us again to this amazing gospel to learn about your son Jesus. And we ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand more hard teaching here. It's hard. We're not used to hearing Jesus confront people. And we want words of comfort, not confrontation. So help us to listen carefully this morning Help us to hear why these words show us how much greater Jesus really is. By your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to hear Jesus. Give us the grace to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, recently, I read an interview that Oprah conducted with the actor Kelsey Grammer. Now, Kelsey Grammer is most known for portraying the psychiatrist Dr. Fraser Crane, uh, first on the show Cheers, and then off the, on the spinoff, Frasier. Two years ago, he also got married again for the fourth time. His new wife, Katie, 25 years his junior, joined him for the interview. They met while he was on a flight from L.A. to London. She was a flight attendant, and he was still married to his third wife. And Grandma recounted that her smile and warm personality attracted him to her. So he asked her if they could trade phone numbers. And Katie recounted how she reached a decision about starting to see this married man. She clearly liked him and felt drawn to him. However, she was given great pause about seeing him since he was married. So after arriving in London while riding on one of those red double-decker buses on her way home from the airport, she asked for a sign to know the right thing to do. She says, quote, I wouldn't have tried to date him knowing he was married. It's against my morals. Anyway, I got on the bus and I sat there and I hadn't heard from him and I thought, shall I call him? Shall I call him? And I thought, no, I can't. I can't. If I should call him, I need a sign. 
I put my head down, and I looked up, and we drove past a restaurant. It was called Frasier's. I thought, no, no, I need another sign. I need another sign. I looked up again, and we drove past Crane's Jewelers. And I said, one more sign if I'm supposed to call him. And we drove past the hotel he was staying in. And that was her confirmation that she should start dating this married man. Now, my first reaction reading the interview was that this woman is really dumb. <laughs> Essentially having convinced her that A, these signs were actually signs from God. And two, God was allowing her to break not only her own morals, but also his own moral law. Then my second reaction was, if God really was at work in her life, I'm pretty sure he can do way better than that. You see, God never contradicts himself. He does things we may not fully understand this side of heaven, but his word is sufficient, and any supposed sign or word of knowledge or prophecy or miracle or even the name of a store you're driving by on a red double-decker bus must be tested against the scriptures. As the Bereans were commended in Acts 17, we read, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. If the Bereans were commended for checking, who was doing the speaking? The Apostle Paul. And they're checking what the Apostle Paul said against the scriptures. Perhaps we should check the scriptures as well when we're desperately trying to convince ourselves that we've seen a sign. With that said, please understand, there isn't a verse in the Bible that supports Katie Walsh's decision to see Kelsey Grammer while he was still married. God never supports sin, never tempts us to engage in sin. Scripture is crystal clear on that point. We read in James 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, Oprah's interview with Kelsey Grammer presents a classic example of how we can justify our actions, even when there's absolutely no biblical support for it. And we cannot and we must not use God to rationalize sin in our lives not to mention seeking some sort of sign to justify sinful behavior. After all, in our text for this morning, we hear Jesus saying, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, the truth is, we all sin every day. And our sins aren't dramatically different than her sins. We want what we want when we want it. And it doesn't matter if it's addictions or adultery. Our sins distance us from God and deny us the full relationship with him that he wants for us. And so it was for the Pharisees. In fact, they are the evil and adulterous generation that Jesus is referring to. So let's see what he says to them. But before we do that, we need to back up a little and look at something earlier in Matthew 12 that informs our understanding of this passage. 
And we find that something important uh, in Matthew 12, verses 6 through 8, where we see that Jesus is a greater priest. Jesus is a greater priest. That's the first blank, hopefully, in your outline. It says there, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We went over this a few weeks ago, and just briefly, this is part of a passage where Jesus is appealing to the ministry of the priests to justify the actions of his disciples and help explain his own ministry. And he says something that's simply explosive. He tells them he's greater than the temple. You have to understand, the temple is huge in Jewish life and thought. All of Judaism was centered on the temple and the sacrificial system. And this is all run by the priests. Priests had great power and authority in Jewish faith and life. They oversaw all matters of religious faith, all aspects of the sacrificial system, and everything that the temple signified was under their control. And here's this teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, saying he's greater than the temple, and therefore he's greater than the priests. This is shocking news. People just couldn't believe what they're hearing. But of course, Jesus doesn't stop there. He took this shocking news and goes one step farther. So let's turn to our text this morning, starting at verse 38. And we see that Jesus gives a greater sign, a greater sign. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Somewhat of an amazing passage. Just prior to the events and the pronouncements of this passage, Jesus has been dealing with hard hearts. He's also been doing a number of healings. Remember what he'd just done back in verse 13. He'd healed a man with a withered hand. In verse 15, he healed a whole number of people who had been brought to him. And in verse 22, he healed a demon-oppressed man so that he could both speak and see. And the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees are so calloused, so hardened, although they had just witnessed a demon cast out of a man so that he could talk after not having been able to talk for years, they dismissed the miracle out of hand. First they attribute it to Satan, and now they ask him for a sign from heaven. Because apparently healing the man with the hand and all the people that showed up and the demon-possessed man who couldn't talk didn't qualify as a sign. So you say, if you could just give us a sign. The man with the withered hand has his hands in the air praising God. The man who can't speak is praising God and yelling, thank you, Jesus, at the top of his lungs. In all of the Gospels, there's about 35 different miracles performed by Christ himself. But if you could just perform a miraculous sign, then we would believe. Because the real issue here is simply 
hardcore unbelief. And that's how unbelief works. It never has enough evidence. And so now Jesus takes on their unbelief. He declares that he would be like Jonah to them. That was the sign. How so? Well, obviously, both Jonah and Jesus were preachers of righteousness and repentance. But the deeper significance of the sign of Jonah is in Jonah's presumed death, burial, and resurrection when he was tossed to his apparent death in the sea, entombed in the fish, and then delivered up alive. And the the rhythm of Jonah's figurative death, burial, and resurrection is literally fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross at the hands of the Romans, his burial by Joseph and Nicodemus, and his glorious resurrection, which is exactly what he says in verse 40. He says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The greater sign that Jesus gives to all, especially those who think they need signs in order to believe, is the miracle of his atoning death, burial, and triumphant resurrection. That's the gospel. That's apostolic preaching. In fact, the Apostle Paul just said so very concisely, 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So again, we see here this glorious rhythm of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the third day. There's a lot of much-needed instruction and correction here for segments of Christianity that have just gone headlong in pursuit of miraculous signs and wonders. We simply have to recognize that miraculous signs in no way guarantee that someone will believe. And this is said both implicitly and explicitly in the Gospel of Matthew. A few chapters later, Matthew 15, there's going to be another season of Jesus healing many people. And then he's going to feed the 4,000. And all of that is immediately followed by Matthew 16.1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He just healed all these people. He just fed 4,000. If you could only give us a sign. I mean, at some point, you just want to start slapping people upside the head. It's kind of like, seriously? You know, he's feeding all these people, he's healing all these people, and you come up and say, we really need a sign. What has he been doing? But giving all these dramatic signs. These are people who do not want to believe. And they're just testing Christ. And so he really indicts them here. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. Seeks for a sign. A million signs and wonders aren't going to make these people turn to Christ. Belief's an act of the will, not merely convincing the mind. Second, the ultimate sign is the sign of Jonah because it makes Christ everything. Jesus is not interested in giving signs that are disconnected from his person and work. He is the sign. He is the gospel. And so he calls to their memory some famous events from history when Gentiles responded to the word of God. The amazing cases 
of Jonah and the Queen of Sheba. He does this for a reason. So first, he emphasized he's the greater priest. And then he told them he gives them a greater sign in his person and work. And now he wants them to see that Jesus is, in fact, a greater prophet. A greater prophet. We're going back to verse 39. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, if you remember the original story, Jonah received God's call to go preach to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim a message of grace and judgment to all the inhabitants there. And Jonah says, no thanks. And he does exactly the opposite, and he goes to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction. Most of us familiar with the story, there's this tossing sea, there's terrified sailors, Jonah gets tossed overboard and swallowed by a huge fish. And spiritually broken, he's inside the fish for three days and decides to pray. Would you wait three days? I mean, I'm sorry. I think when I saw like the big mouth coming, you know, I'd start praying then. Maybe once they were picking me up to, you know, throw me over, boy, I'd start praying then. I don't know. It just never quite got that, except it does work well with the rest of the Bible. So anyway, he repents, and he gets coughed up onto a sandy beach. And back on dry land, uh, God recommissions Jonah. This time he does the right thing. He goes to Nineveh and preaches to all the people there and tells them about the miraculous way God has changed his mind about preaching to them. And his experience made him a sign to the Gentiles. And the Ninevites, including their king, believed God and turned to him in faith and repentance. And here Jesus is referring to Jonah's experience as symbolic of his own death and resurrection. And he states that Jonah's converts, the men of Nineveh, will stand up on Judgment Day and condemn Jesus' generation for their lack of faith. Don't forget, Jonah's converts are Ninevites. The Jews hated the Ninevites. They hated them. In Old Testament history, oppressive empires came from Nineveh. And Jesus' response must have cut the Pharisees like a knife. But then he twists the knife by telling them that they're going to be condemned by pagans, condemned by the pagan Ninevites, no less. Can't imagine how this must have angered the Orthodox Jews. But here's Jesus' point. If pagan Nineveh repented after hearing a simple message of judgment from one foreign prophet who actually hated them and performed no miracles in their presence, how much more should this generation repent when God has sent them his very own Son, the one who is greater than Jonah. And furthermore, he loved them, and he did many miracles in their presence. So again, we see he is a greater priest. He gives them a greater sign in his person and work, 
And now we're told he's a greater prophet. And finally, he wants them and us to see that Jesus is a greater king. A greater king. Look at verse 42. And he's twisting the knife again with a second example. This pagan queen of the south will condemn them. He says, verse 42, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The reference here is to the queen of Sheba, whose visit to Solomon is talked about in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. She's a Gentile, a pagan, and a woman. So for the Jews, that's like three strikes you're out. She lives at the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula in what we uh, think is the modern-day country of Yemen, which would have seemed like the ends of the earth to the people in Jesus' day, although actually many Ethiopians today claim Sheba as their own. Anyway, she hears of Solomon's wisdom. At great cost, she travels to see him, and once she sees him, she believes all of the reports and gives praise to the God of Israel. And Jesus contrasts her search for truth to that of these rebellious leaders who reject him, even though he is far greater than Solomon. And the Pharisees, remember, they're criticizing and judging Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying at the end of verse 42, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In their way of thinking, there's nothing greater than Solomon. I mean, they love David more. But Solomon had a bigger kingdom. He had more stuff. He had more wealth. He had more wives. He had more everything. And so they must have just been aghast at this statement. Something greater than Solomon is here. I mean, Jesus is a carpenter's son. Solomon was born in a palace. Jesus was born in a stable. Solomon was born in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in little Bethlehem. Solomon had all these servants to wait on him hand and foot. Jesus didn't have any servants. Solomon had kingly robes. Jesus wore peasant's garb. Solomon drank from uh, uh, goblets of gold. Jesus had to ask the Samaritan woman for a drink. Solomon is rich beyond measure. Jesus was poor and lowly. Solomon had great armies. Jesus had these few stragglers following along behind him. Solomon lived in a mansion, a palace. Jesus was homeless and we're told sometimes didn't have a place to lay his head. Solomon had thousands of horses and chariots and rode in splendor. Jesus walked. How could Jesus be greater than Solomon? Well, let's look at that. Because I think there's some ways that Jesus is greater than Solomon. First of all, he's greater in wisdom. You talk about a wise man. Solomon was very wise. He wrote the book of Proverbs. We're told he knew 3,000 Proverbs and had memorized 1,500 songs. He didn't need a laptop. He didn't need PowerPoint. He had all his memorized. An incredible mind. He knew all about the created world. But Jesus has greater wisdom because Jesus made all the things that Solomon knew about. 
Bible actually tells us that Solomon studied the fish, and he knew all about fish. But Jesus knew more. He knew enough about fish to fill two empty nets to sink two boats. Solomon knew all about the cycles of the wind, we're told, but Jesus knew how to rebuke the wind and cause the Sea of Galilee to be still at his command. Solomon knew all about navigation. He sent ships out all over the earth to bring back riches. Jesus could walk on water. Solomon had wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Again, the apostle tells us in Colossians 2 that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So not only is Jesus greater in wisdom, but he's greater in his works. Solomon built this huge palace for himself. It took 13 years to complete. It defies description. But Jesus is building a greater house. John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Solomon invited people in for great feasts, but Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed thousands. He turned still water into sparkling wine. Solomon built a temple beyond compare, the most magnificent building that had ever been built. But Jesus has a greater temple. You and I are that temple. First Corinthians 6 says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Jesus is greater in wisdom, he's greater in works, and he's greater in wealth. Solomon's incredibly wealthy. Bill Gates will have to stand aside when it comes to Solomon. We're told he has tons and tons of gold, along with ivory and spices, and wealth just poured in to Solomon's coffers. But Jesus' wealth is greater. The Bible tells us the cattle on a thousand hills belong to Jesus, and all the diamonds and rubies in those hills, every star in the sky belongs to him. Like other great kings, Solomon has come and gone, and all that he had is gone, but Jesus is here, and he'll supply you with his wisdom. He'll give you living water so you'll never thirst again. He's preparing a place for you in heaven, and Jesus will give you joy day by day. And that's why we worship the one who is greater than Solomon. He is the everlasting king and our great savior. And the problem with all of this is we don't believe it. Very often, we don't act like we have a greater priest or a greater prophet or a greater king. We act like the Pharisees. And we wonder if Jesus really could be that much better, let alone that much greater, and so we doubt. And we have to realize that he's not just a greater priest, and he's not just a greater prophet, and he's not just a greater king, but he's greater because he's all three at once. We have to be convinced that the threefold office is greater. I mean, we wonder and we worry and we doubt and disbelieve because we know how powerful our sin really is. We know how easy it is for us to give in to sin. We know how sin keeps tripping us up and just hounds us. And for some here, it's hard to believe, but as powerful as sin is, the blood of Christ is greater still. In Christ, the chains of our captivity have been broken. 
The light of his grace has shown us the way to freedom. But how has he freed us? Christ has secured our freedom because in the shedding of his blood, he was operating in this divinely ordained threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And that's why in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we read he's called the faithful witness as prophet, the firstborn of the dead as priest, and the ruler of kings on earth as king. And the threefold office of Christ were granted our freedom from sin. As prophet, Jesus pronounces an end to all our sin. In the Old Testament, the prophet is the mouthpiece of God to the people. In fact, often the prophets would preface their words by saying, Thus saith the Lord. And as God's mouthpiece, the prophet spoke the words of indictment against the people for their sin, and he would call them to repentance, like we read in Isaiah 1, where he said, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And the prophet pronounced forgiveness and pardon of God. And Jesus as the final sufficient and ultimate prophet, has done all of these for us. He came not just proclaiming the word of God, he is the word of God, John 1. He came to the world because of sin, Matthew 1. He proclaimed our need to repent and believe in him, Mark 1. And he proclaimed our pardon and forgiveness for sin in Colossians 1. As priest, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. In the Old Testament, the high priest is a mediator between God and his sinful people. And as mediator, the high priest entered the holy place in the temple, offered a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Leviticus 16 tells us, Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And this he did year after year after year after year. But Christ, as our mediator and high priest, not only offered the sacrifice once and for all, but he is the sacrifice. Like the high priest of old, Christ enters the holy place, but unlike the high priest, he entered to offer himself. And he only had to enter one time, for he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? from dead works to serve the living and true God. He is a greater prophet, greater priest. As king, Jesus rules in such a way as to not allow sin to reign over us any longer. In the Old Testament, the monarchy was established for the peace, prosperity, and welfare of the nation. 
And the prototypical king is King David. No king as beloved is him. Solomon may have been greater, bigger kingdom, more wealth. But when you ask Israel, even today, who's the great king? Everyone will tell you it's King David. He was beloved. He's God's vice regent among the people. When David was on the throne, the nation of Israel could say, all is well. Few things comfort a nation more than having a ruler of righteousness and strength sitting on the throne of power. Second Samuel 8 tells us, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. However, we now have a king greater than David. Christ came in the line of David as David's son, and yet also as David's Lord, Matthew 22. He is the ruler of kings on earth, Revelation 1, king of kings and lord of lords, Revelation 19. He rules with perfect justice and equity. And as our king, he has fought our battles and now rules in such a way that sin can never reign over us, Romans 6. As king, he can tell us in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He is the gospel. He is wisdom. He is the word. He is the sacrifice. He is the sign. We have a prophet, priest, and king who is greater than anyone or anything else in the whole world. You need to think about that and give thanks for that and put your faith in that truth. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a greater prophet, a greater priest, and a greater king. In this passage, we see your Son, our Savior. We see him as the living word of God, the wisdom of God, the sacrifice of God, and the great sign of God. So take away our doubts. Give us the faith to believe that the shedding of his blood is greater than all our sin. Help us to believe more than we did when we walked in here this morning. And help us to know and believe the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.